Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. So today we're in for an extra special treat. We have Hud McWilliams and Nancy. Nancy here, or is she is she back over here? Yeah, there she is. Hud and Nancy McWilliams with us. I've got like a 16-page document here on HUD. I'll, I'll summarize it. Just kidding. That's how uh, awesome he is. And uh, he is academic dean for six years and professor at the Center for Advanced Biblical Studies in California and Dallas. Uh, he was on the pastoral staffs of two fellowship Bible churches in Dallas, Texas for 25 years, serving on the pastoral staff at one where he was the director of the counseling ministry and a member of the elder board. He was at the original fellowship Bible church. He was the senior pastor. Hud is a graduate of the University of Northern, I'm going to say this like my buddy Randy says, from Colorado, from Colorado, <laughs> Northern Colorado, and North Texas State University, awesome music university, before the time in California at the Jesus Christ Light and Powerhouse. That goes back to the, my days. Jesus, Yay, amen. Yeah, Jesus freaks. All right. Hud spent nine years as a professor of psychology at Texas Wesleyan University. He's been a licensed psychologist in Texas since 1975 and Colorado since 2000. He's been in private practice for over 40 years. He's a professional counseling and leadership development resource for local evangelical pastors. He specializes in relational seminars and intensive intensives and is an adjunct professor at the Denver Theological Seminary. Um, Nancy, his wife of 52, is that right? 52, 53 years now. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> Went to Seattle Pacific University and graduated from Texas Wesleyan University with a master's from North Texas State University. Did I say that was a great music school? She's been a substitute teacher in the public school system in Texas and Colorado for 27 years and now is retired and supports HUD in their ministry with Global Training Network. Um, HUD also counsels and does intensives with pastors and missionaries at Quiet Water Waters Ministries in Parker, Colorado. And uh, the biggest endorsement that I got is uh, from our dear friend and member here, Doug and members Doug and John Dorman, who, uh, yep, who know them very well, and also Linus and Sharon Morris. And so come on up, HUD. It is uh, a great joy. HUD ministered to the staff and the board on Friday. Yes. And uh, let me just pray quickly. Father, thank you for this couple and all that you've done in their lives up to this moment. We pray that you would come and continue to do great work through them. And this morning, Lord, give HUD the gift of teaching and empower him, Lord, to minister to us. We open our hearts, Holy Spirit, to you. Dear Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Now come and do your good work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. My goodness. Who wrote that? <laughs> okay, I have to just tell you this story quickly. Uh, I was at a friend's house uh, in Texas, and I'd never met this. It was his brother-in-law, and he was a retired CEO for this company, and, and he'd been in sales his whole life. And we had this great conversation, and I thought it was fabulous. I mean, I just was really reveling in it, and pretty intense conversation. I enjoyed it. And at the end, we were getting ready to leave, and he said, could I give you just a little bit of feedback? I don't know this guy. You know, what are you doing giving me feedback? But anyway, he decided he wanted to give me some feedback. And I said, well, sure. Trying to be nice, right? 
And to which he said, I think you'd be more effective and people would listen to you better if you'd smile. <laughs> so I just want to get this out of the way. <laughs> See, I can do it, right? You know? I, I'm wired intense. Uh, I don't know where that came from. I'm not making an excuse for it. It's the way I'm wired. I'm going to give you uh, uh, a message this morning uh, that's, in, that's got some intensity to it. And it's not intense for intensity's sake. It's because I think the things you sing about, uh, that you, you can, you know, not be fearful anymore and that you can step away from your past. And those were all in the lyrics that you sang with gusto this morning. I want to challenge you to put that into practice in a real sense. We're going to talk about a little tiny, tiny, narrow piece of the puzzle this morning. Uh, and I want you to know that. I want you to know it's just a tiny piece, but it's a piece that gets in the way of us experiencing the freedom and the joy that's essentially the core of being a believer. Now, I grew up in a church, and, and one of the messages I got was that freedom and joy should be the mark of a believer. And I've been in church my whole life. Uh, Doug and I were talking about this this morning. I became a believer when I was seven. I've never looked back. It's been a great ride. So I, that's a whole other story. But the bottom line is, I find very few believers that function out of freedom and joy, essentially. Most of us are gritting our teeth and dragging through life in, in, at some level. Or we're covering up stuff. Or we're running away. Or we have stuff in our life that we don't want to talk about. And so I want to talk about that this morning just because I like to talk about it. Really uncomfortable stuff, so <laughs> take the ride with me, if you will. Uh, if, you, if you do, a, do me a favor and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, if it was my want to do this the way I would like to do it, I would read the whole chapter to you. But we're just going to, I'm going to talk about the whole chapter, but I'm going to talk about the first three verses. I'm going to read them and make some comments right now, and then we'll come back to it. But it sets the groundwork for why I want to teach what I want to teach this morning. This is after chapter 11, where people have walked by faith, and there's illustration after illustration by the Hebrew writer of these people. And a lot of them were successful on the outside by the terms that we use, successful. Uh, but the Bible's term of success is, is quite different. And you get down to about verse 35 in chapter 11, and it shifts. And you have a whole group of people that externally were failures. Uh, they wouldn't be marked as anything of significance from the outside because they didn't succeed, if you will, from a worldly standard based on what you can see. But Paul clearly says in Corinthians, he says, you're not to walk by sight, you're to walk by faith, right? So he sets this up, and then he starts in chapter 12 this way. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, well, who's this cloud of witnesses? Well, it's part of chapter 11, but I also think it's, it's people that are in your life right now or next to you. Actually, if, if I could illustrate this way, it would be like you're running a relay race, and you're one of the runners, and you run your part, and you passed off the baton, and then you are a witness to the next runner. 
and you're standing there and you want to win that race and you're cheering that pers person on and you're cheering the rest of your team on, that's this cloud. It's not just an abstract group of people, you know, some other eon that lived. It's right now, in your life, right now, cheering you on. That's what this community should be able to do with one another. And so he says this, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, uh, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Now, that's where I'm coming from. The word encumbrance is a fascinating word. Here it says, let us throw off everything that hinders us. That's different than the next line, thus and the sin that easily entangles us. Encumbrances weigh you down. Sin keeps you from running. Right? You can't run if your feet are all tangled up. That's what sin does. What encumbrances does is more subtle. It slows you down. It weighs you down. It wears you out. It tires you. It keeps you from being able to run with freedom. I ride a bike in Colorado, and uh, one of the things about riding a bike as you get older is you want to get rid of all the extra weight. <laughs> well, I can't get rid of this very quickly, so I have to be careful about what I carry, right? And some guys carry backpacks, and I just can't do get backpacks because in Colorado, it's unlike here. It goes up and down, right? <laughs> Mostly up. And it's just really amazing what difference a little weight makes. So this is about the weight. And I'm going to take just one little piece of what I think encumbers most people that are following after Jesus. So just stay with me. We'll come back to that. Uh, run with endurance the race. Where am I? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. No. Let's run the, with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So that's the focus. Focus matters. I played racquetball with a guy who was ranked number 11 in the world. Not fun. Uh, <laughs> I was good, but that wasn't fun. And I, I could play him in squash, but racquetball was another thing. I got creamed on this court. We played three games one day, and, and I, I think I scored five points. Three was his, you know, <laughs> mistakes, right? So that's not pretty, you know, and it doesn't feel good. And I'm coming off, by the way, I'm very skilled at complaining. Anybody got that? <laughs> Complaining, griping, bitching, moaning, you know, I was, I'm good at it. And so I was whining. I'm no good. I haven't, I, you, you couldn't, you didn't even break a sweat. You know, I'm talking smack basically. And he said, he said, shut up. Now I'm, old, I'm old enough to be his father, right? So I didn't think that was very respectful. But he said, he said, look, you have all the shots I have. I said, no, you got to be, you know, he said, no. He said, you're past that point in your game. He said, the only difference between you and me is focus. Said, what? He said, an a, 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 a professional focuses on 15, 14 or 15 of the, of the points in a game. Uh, an open player, 13, 14, somewhere in there. He says, an A player, which you are, focuses on like 10, 9, 10, 11, 12. And then he says, he went back to the very first game, and he knew where I served, and he knew what shot he selected, and he knew what the next shot was, and he walked me through that first game, shot by shot, and he would say, you, you thought you beat me here, and I dove and kept the ball in play, and you'd already taken yourself out of the play because you lost focus. 
He said, the only thing you can focus on to win is the next thing you can control. You can't control what just happened. You can control in some ways, or at least mark out what the next step is. So let that be a lesson for you when you think about what I'm talking about this morning. What's behind you, what is in your past. There was a line in one of these songs says that we can, we can let go of our past. It's like we can turn around. And you can't forget your past. Sorry, your mind doesn't work that way. I can't, can't do that for you this morning. What I can do, though, is get you to turn around and focus on what you can actually impact next so that you don't have to run the next step encumbered. I'm making sense a little? Okay. So here we go. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Where am I? Is it up there? I'm reading two different translations, so sorry. Fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, wow, we're coming up on the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Didn't say liked the cross. Didn't say wanted to do it. He endured the cross. And why did he, why was he able to do it? It was for the joy set before him. Joy is a relational word in Scripture, and it's a perspective word. It's not about a feeling. Sorry. Happiness is about a feeling. Pleasure is about a feeling. Joy is not. Joy is a way to look at life. Joy sets you free. Joy calms you down. Joy anchors you. Joy gives you a way to look at life in a good way. And so he says here, he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And here's a huge piece. I'd like to spend a weekend with you talking about despising the shame. Shame is not something I think Jesus died for. He died for guilt. Shame is the artifact that our adversary uses to keep us out of the game, to make us feel like we're guilty. Jesus' work on the cross was finished and perfect, and he took away all your guilt related to your sin. Here's the grabber, past, present, and future. Sin is not the issue, folks. Shame is the way Satan hooks you back into this. And so what this text says is that Jesus actively, that's what the Greek word means when it's translated despised or scorned. He actively went after the shame and said, shut up, you are not telling me the truth. So when you feel bad, you've got to be able to dress it, and that's what the scriptures give us. The scripture's greatest claim is that it's true. Our culture thinks you can create your own truth. It's not true. <laughs> Truth doesn't change. You know, I, it, you can run into that pole and it's going to do what a pole will do, no matter what you think. Don't, don't be reading your text when you walk around in here. You could get hurt, you know. Okay, so anyway, he says, despising the shame, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not. Now, why does he do all this? For just two things. So that you'll not grow weary, so that you'll not lose heart, not lose hope. But a lot of us are carrying stuff around in our own souls that rob us of access to joy. So take this ride with me this morning. 
I think most of us, when we come up against hard things, when some difficulty comes our way or when something out of our history uh, uh, encumbers us in some way, and when it comes to dealing with hard stuff or mess, we just pretend it's not there. We don't do the work to address it and we don't clean it up before painting over it. So take a deep breath and look at this picture. It works. Hello. Magic. Close your eyes and maybe it'll appear. This is, this, the title for my talk is called a striped fox syndrome. That fox is very dead and they just painted right over it, didn't they? And that's what most of us do with dead stuff in our lives. Most of the things that encumber us, that come from our adversary, are not alive. He is the prince of darkness, not life. He's just the opposite. And so he drags us down with stuff that we should offload, but we don't offload it because it gets in our way. And so we're going to talk about this sticky thing this morning called bitterness. Now, I think that it's not just a little deal. I think that it's a big deal. So I went to a conference, a continuing education conference, a few about a month ago. And at the conference, they talked about post-traumatic stress disorder. You've heard of that, PTSD. People have it. People, it's a big deal. We've studied it. The more we study it, the more we know. Most people that are stressed, that's the stress of the disorder, uh, have anxiety and depression or the outcome of it. And so we know this about it, and we can treat anxiety, and we can treat depression to a certain extent, but there's still stuff hanging around. And the stuff that's hanging around comes through what I think will soon be another diagnostic category, which is called post-traumatic embitterment disorder. We want to get rid of the stress in our lives, so we try to arrange our lives so that it's not so stressful. But here, here we're talking about embitterment, and embitterment is this resentment and this hurt and this, it's not fair. Have you ever said it's not fair? Have you ever heard a kid say it's not fair? Have you ever heard it's not fair anywhere? Are you paying your taxes now? You probably are going to say <laughs> it's not fair, right? I know you're there. I know you're out there, see? This piece of the puzzle is enormous because what bitterness does is it acts in a corrosive way towards your soul. I, did, I taught some of this a couple of years back to a Sunday school class of 70-year-olds. Every one of them talks about some kind of broken relationship somewhere that has not been healed, not been reconciled, not been rebuilt, not been forgiven, something that they're carrying around, some breach of relationship, some betrayal, some hurt, some violation in some way, and they're carrying it around 20 or 30 years later. Think of your family. I mean, uh, go through Thanksgiving and Christmas with your family, and I bet in most families you're going to find these, these pieces of the puzzle that what encumber us, don't they? I want you to listen to what Scripture says about this, but I also want to set the stage for why it's so difficult to uproot this. We have a thing called personality disorders. Now, the ones who are most popular, <laughs> right, popular disorders, is called narcissism. We actually, in my field, are trying to, I disagree with this, are trying to make a, a category called normal narcissism. Yeah, just let it sink in a little bit, you know. I mean, 
we all want to be, you know, everybody's born a narcissist. You know that, you know. There's, every child thinks he's God. And we treat him like it, right? He can poop whenever he wants to. He can throw up on you. You know, he demands everything. And we, and we give it to him, right? No wonder they have trouble adjusting, right? <laughs> Sorry. I like children. We've got three. They survived, so, you know. <laughs> it's not all that. Thanks to Nancy, by the way. Anyway, what we've learned is that uh, we used to call these character disorders, and character disorder is probably a more accurate description because it's not healthy at all. And here's what comprises every character disorder. Every character disorder wants to win at all cost. They will not lose. And it's because they're terrified that you'll find out that there's nobody home inside. So they kind of win at all costs. And that's the mantra for all character disorders. I don't care whether it's bipolar or narcissistic or sociopathy or, yeah, doesn't matter. There's about 11 of them, okay? So what we know is that they always want to self-justify. Self-justification is where I want to prove to you that I'm correct in the way that I said something. And I am the, I'm a marvelous justifier. I'd love to tell you some stories about how to justify better. But just, self-justification is deadly because you're not willing to take the blame for the impact that you're having on somebody. The Bible talks about how God's kindness draws us to change. That's in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, why do you despise his patience and his forbearance, not knowing that it's his kindness that draws you to repentance? Interesting. We don't change the way we think. That's what repentance means. We don't change the way we think. We don't access the joy Jesus died for. We don't access the faith that he gives us. We don't access the grace that he gives us because we have a barrier in our own soul and it's this unprocessed ball of bitterness and embitterment and resentment and hurt and we stay stuck. And I thought this was pretty fascinating stuff and so I actually found the Belgian guy that's doing the research and I bought his book and it says embitterment. It's a great read, right? Everybody wants to read a whole book on embitterment, you know. <laughs> But he's telling you something. And here's, here's a kicker. In, in this discussion is every character disordered person thinks that they should be able to avoid pain. I want to challenge you just a little bit. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we often think that if we work hard enough, pray long enough, uh, go to enough studies, uh, Come on, help me, you know, join a small group, find a ministry, work in social justice, do something, right, that we can get it right, and finally, somehow, finally we will be free. Somehow we will be free of suffering and, and difficulty, and where is that in Scripture? Life is difficult under optimal circumstances. And I honestly think that in the garden, it was designed to challenge you, designed to be a hurdle you have to struggle with. And it's designed to be a challenge because if you're going to tell me your story, you're going to tell me the things you struggled with and, and lived through and endured and overcome. And, and that's what Jesus did all this work for. Why? So that you won't grow weary. You won't lose heart. But so many people have already lost heart, and they've lost heart because they've given sway to our enemy who says you should be ashamed 
that you haven't dealt with his bitterness, but you don't know how to deal with it in some way. So here's the background. Two studies in America of pastors in the evangelical world says that between 90 and 116,000 fit the character disorder of narcissism. We value that. We praise that. We hire that. We feed that beast, in a sense. That's not at all what I think scriptural leadership is. But it's there. So I, I stumbled onto, when I was studying for this, I stumbled onto another big piece of research done in the Netherlands. And they say fully 85% of evangelical pastors fit this same pattern. Self-justifying. Don't think they should have to hurt. Never struggle. And so the pain and the hurt piece is pretty fascinating. So just follow me quickly. In the passage we're reading from in Hebrews 12, the next section is about discipline. Nice word, huh? Everybody likes it. Discipline is not punishment. Jesus took all the punishment for your sin. That's past. If your child spills grape juice on your white carpet and you start yelling at him, that's punishment. You're trying to make him pay for the mistake that he made. If you discipline him, you're going to encourage him to participate in cleaning up the mess, and that's pulling you toward the future. What can you do now to correct this? Remember my story about focus? Don't focus on what you just did, whether good or bad. Focus on the only focus you can have during the game is what's next. How do I tap joy in the midst of this? Doesn't feel joyful. I want to rip his head off. You know. But if I love him, if I'm going to show him kindness, I'm going to draw him into the future and I'm going to say, let's clean this up together. Because messes happen all the time. This is a messy world. Jesus stepped into it, and that's what you're going to celebrate at Easter. He got smunched, killed. You know, I just got back from. Israel, and we, they think, you know, the Romans did this like for an advertisement so you'd be afraid of Rome. Uh, like he's, his cross was right next to a main thoroughfare so everybody would have to pass it and see. It's not far up somewhere. It's present tense. Why? Because God disciplines us because he loves us. He pulls us into the future. Well, discipline is, is clean pain. Discipline is what you do when you go to the gym. Discipline is what you do when you uh, eat better. Discipline is, is the thing that is oriented toward the future and it pulls you that way, but it's a painful process. It's a, it's, you can't build a muscle without th some pain being involved in it. That's called clean pain. Dirty pain is what I'm talking about when you carry around an encumbrance and you don't need to. And the encumbrance, from my point of view, is this thing called bitterness. So just listen to how it happens in a, in a in a marriage, I think marriage is a good example because most people that come to, to marriage counseling come six years late. They have an issue, and six years later they show up at your door, and you, they want you to help them. And usually they're, you know, have already stepped off the cliff, and you're going, I hope you land on something soft, you know, because you can't help them a whole lot. They've already done the crazy stuff instead of doing the work in the process. And so, uh, I think they they have what's called a battle of empathy. And an empathy battle is where each person is trying to get the other person 
to agree with them. So I'll just let me read this to you, because I can read it to you faster. My wife hates it when I do this. She says, you should never read to people. You can close your eyes, maybe, and pr pretend like you're a little kid and having a story read to you. Paula tells John that she's upset and hurt by something he said. Have you ever had this conversation in marriage? A way he responded to her opinion on a family matter. She asks if in the future he could say the same thing with an attitude of kindness and or curiosity and not be so critical. Remember, it's God's kindness that draws you to repentance. It's not his power. It's not his glory. It's not his majesty. It's not his godness. It's his kindness. We, the other overwhelms us. Moses asks in Exodus 34, he says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He knew that he'd shown him plenty of glory by that time. I mean, in 10 major plagues in Egypt and all this stuff, plenty of glory, plenty of power. But power is not the thing that's going to draw you to the God of the universe that sees you and deals with you personally. Kindness. And her curiosity about the other person, not be so critical simply because her opinion differs from his. And John reacts to Paul's feelings with a request by aggressively inquiring why he should offer her kindness and curiosity when last month she shut down his experience over a different matter and treated him unkindly. So it's not fair, is it? You treated me unkindly, you want me to treat you kindly today? Well, you got to go back and fix that one, right? How am I doing? Sorry, I don't want to step on any toes or maybe all toes. How's that? <laughs> Paula then attacks him back, explaining why he deserved to behave the way she did in the interaction last month and why her response last, last month was a reaction to what he did two months ago, which she believes was unkind and aggressive. And then John barks that he was entitled to his behavior two months ago because she was unkind and critical of the things he did three months ago. And back in time it goes, right? I've been in counseling for a long time, and I would say only about 1% of the people that I've worked with have done the work to rebuild trust. Bitterness comes when trust is broken. Come on, folks. Don't drag yourself through life when what God offers you is pure freedom. Well, let's go on. Couples do this all the time. They fight over who's deserving of empathy, whose experience should get to matter, Character-disordered people can't be empathetic. They use empathy against you. They don't use empathy to, to understand you and to love you and to grow you and to set you free. They use empathy to manipulate you and, you, and use you in some way. Whose experience should matter? Whose hurt should be taken care of? Whose experience should be validated? Often partners refuse to offer empathy to each other because they feel that to do so would mean admitting that they are to blame. Did you hear that? No character disordered person ever will, will own the blame. They'll always have some self-justification. I hate this because I'm so good at self-justifying. I don't like teaching it because it, if I have to stay longer than today, you're going to catch me <laughs> in my <laughs> junk. You know, I don't want that. I want you to think that I've got this all nailed, you know. <laughs> Just ask Nancy. We don't have it nailed. Sorry. 
thus giving up the chance to receive empathy and validation of their own. If I care about how my words hurt you, then I'm admitting that I am to blame for causing you that pain. And perhaps even more important, the truth of why I said those words, or more accurately, why I was entitled to say those words, I thought, will never be validated or received its own empathy. Empathy for you effectively cancels out empathy for me, so I can't give it to you, etc. It's the kindness of God. That's what empathy is. There's the word that, that stands behind all that in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. And it's this, this complicated word about God's loving kindness. It's actually a mistranslation. Uh, hesed is a word that has both a sentiment, loving kindness in it, and it has a legal component to it, loyalty. So it should be loving loyalty, actually. It's translated sometimes in the Old Testament as mercy. Can you be merciful to somebody with you? Can you be merciful to somebody that's hurt you? Here's what Jesus said about that. He says, learn to love your enemies, right? We know the answer, but we don't do it. Here's the people that are the most likely to be enemies are the ones that are closest to you, not farthest away. And I bet most of you sitting in here are carrying some degree of bitterness in some way in, in your closest relationships, and I'm going to appeal to you hopefully, to begin to remove that from you. Well, you can turn with me if you want, quickly. Uh, back to Hebrews 12, he says, uh, verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, this is verse 15, that no root of bitterness, that no what? Root of bitterness, embitterment, spring up, causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he de desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He didn't seek for repentance with tears. He sought for his blessing. And he was mad because he lost. I thought, just quickly, you can just listen to me. Jacob, Esau. Jacob's a mess. Esau's a mess. They were twins. They're a mess. Right? Do you got that? They're a mess. They're both a mess. But they're introduced in Genesis 25 in different ways. Here, Jacob's introduced by activity in Genesis 25, 26. That's how he's described. Esau's inter inter introduced by appearance in 25, 25. So one has a spiritual appetite, one has a physical appetite. Jacob, even though he's a mess, deals with the unseen. He sought the intangibles like blessings and birthrights. And he, it was long-term oriented. And he has the internal stuff. Esau, on the other hand, was sensual. He had the smell of the profane. It was the immediate. He wanted the food. He wanted to sell his birthright. He was willing to sell it for a, because he was just hungry. He just couldn't. He had no impulse control, I guess would be the way to say it. He was externally oriented. Jacob moved toward God and wrestled with God, acknowledged God. And that's where we get the idea of wrestling, because Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord and, and actually won the match. And as a result of winning the match, God changes his name from Jacob, which means deceiver or used car salesman or something like that, and, <laughs> and moves it over here to, to Israel. And the word Israel means people who wrestle with God. 
And a wrestling match is strenuous, and, it, and it's intense, and it takes everything you can give to it. And Esau didn't move toward God. He's motivated by self-gain or loss. No bitterness in Jacob. He reconciled to God. No place for repentance. We just read about for Esau. He had a bitter cry. Remorse was in losing. It was not in what he lost. It's not that he lost his blessing. It's not that he lost the birthright. It's that he lost, right? So he, <laughs> he didn't want to change. He wanted to win. But I just tell you about character disorder, people. If you are in the kingdom, God has already won. You do not have to push, strive, posture, generate a persona to convince people that you're okay. You can be open and walk in the light and be exposed. That's what naked means in the Old Testament. He created us knowable. Don't carry with you bitterness another step. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, a chapter that, that really talks about maturity and what it takes to grow up. And so the immature stopped this early. I, I told you that narcissism starts early in life, doesn't it? It's, it's in children. It's built into them. We, we hopefully socialize it out of them, but the bottom line is we're not doing a very good job. And as our culture goes backwards uh, uh, relationally, we get more problematic. And so here at the end of Chapter 4, where he talks about how you relate to one another. And he, he has this great verse, speaking the truth in love. And no, most people have heard that. They just don't know the next part of the verse. And the next part of the verse says, thereby grow up. Really. So Paul's saying the only way you're going to grow up is if you speak the truth. So if you're hurt, you've got to deal with it in some way. How do you speak the truth? Well, you have to modify it by love. Later he says, you can't tell a lie. You've got to tell the truth. But there's a way to tell it. You tell it in such a way that you don't use unwholesome language a few verses later. And so he's going through this whole thing and he says he's given to the church all these offices so that all these different people participate in your life. You can't just make it through life on your own, in your own closet, trying to make sense out of it. So and then at the end of this, here's how, you, here's how it reads. It says, uh, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you we're sealed for the day of redemption. And then he tells you what that means. The next verse, 31. Let all what? Bitterness and wrath, anger and resentment. Let all that clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind, kind. There's that word again. When Paul describes love in chapter 13 of Corinthians, he's, he, he has like 18 descriptors. Half of them are what love is not, half of them are what love is. There's only one active word in that whole line, and it's the word kindness. Kindness is what empathy is. I hate the fact that I just hurt you. I keep hurting my wife. I don't want to. I hate it, but I keep doing it. Part of its habit, part of its lack of maturity, stupidity, stubbornness, sin, you name it. I mean, it's all in there, right? And, but I keep hurting her, and I don't want to. I claim to want to love her. So if I'm, the more I'm willing to take the blame, the more I'm willing to go slower and be more kind, aren't I? Show her that compassionate love that says, even though you're, you're toxic right now, please, please, can, we, can you forgive me? Can we come back again? Can we do this? Better. Can I not leave a bitterness in you? 
bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from me, along with all malice, and be what? Kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ has also forgiven you. So, huge piece of the puzzle. Last thing, James. James talks about wisdom. Fascinating thing about wisdom. It's described as gentle. Listen to him. Chapter 3 in James. He's talking about the tongue. And he says, you get blessing and cursing from the same mouth. These things ought not to be, he says. Does a fountain out of the same opening get fresh and bitter water? So he uses bitterness again as a descriptor. And the, and the descriptor is that that's, that's what most of us carry around. So we have it, it's right underneath the surface for most of us. We look good on the outside, but we're, we're hurting on the inside. And we can't actually open ourselves up to, to having empathy in a relationship. And so we can't receive kindness because we can't give it. And we haven't received it yet from God. And so we get stuck. And, and that's Satan's playground. That's what he's doing to us. And that's what encumbers us from keeping us from running this race. And so let's look at how he finishes this. He says, uh, it shouldn't be this way. Verse 13, who, who, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have, and here it goes, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you're going to want to win. God wants you to play the game. He's not, it's not about winning and losing. That part's over. You should sit in your culture today with all its toxicity and have a confidence that no matter what occurs externally, the battle is internal. The battle's how you see it. The battle's how calm you are in the midst of the storm. And you won't be calm if you're hiding bitterness underneath. You won't be able to run the race. You'll just be dragging yourself slowly around the track. That's my introduction. <laughs> okay, so, so what I'd like to do with you right now is I'd like you to just take a breath. Maybe close your eyes. Don't think about somebody else. I don't care if you're married or not married. It doesn't really matter. Find those places, just at least one. You have a lifetime to do this, by the way. Find one today and begin to practice a couple things. Releasing the toxicity that will corrode your soul and make you fearful, angry, bitter, resentful, stuck. And turn around, face the future, let God discipline you and draw you into forgiveness, joy, freedom, resilience, hardiness, rest. Give God a chance to proclaim in your own soul the finished work of Jesus. He's already done enough. I don't know how you have to do this. Maybe, maybe you need to find somebody and say, you know, I was to blame. I don't want to be to blame. I don't want to be this anymore. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness.
I know I've hurt you. I don't want to keep doing that. Maybe it's just between you and the Spirit. Father, I know you're here. Help us to call into our awareness your presence. Help us to focus on the life-giving quality of your work on our behalf. That your grace is sufficient. We don't have to whine and ask for more. Your forgiveness was complete. We don't have to strive any longer. Thank you for this space where we have such freedom. We're not, we're not paranoid to be here. We're not under some kind of duress. Culturally, we can be free, but with that comes more responsibility. Help us to walk in freedom and not go another day dragging an encumbrance along. Just this one piece. Pray we can offer to you with a sacrifice of thanksgiving that you are enough. Father, protect these people from me and Thank you for your son, who alone gives us hope, access to joy as a result, in his name. Strong and gentle name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Hud. Prayer team over by the cross here, and uh, man, what a wonderful word! Liberating, Holy Spirit, thank you for this word. Would you remind us and revisit in our hearts the kindness of Christ, the goodness of a Savior who saw us at our worst? saved us. Let your kindness fill our hearts. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and you can learn more about us by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you need prayer, you can call us or email care at seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel called to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or text any amount to 84321 and follow the prompts.